Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we are talking about the impulse that drives most human beings in the world. You know, what do most of us want out of life? Yes, we want happiness, but we are on the constant pursuit of pleasure and to be taken out of our pain, our discomfort, and our suffering. And what happens when that uh, cycle of pleasure-seeking goes awry, some of us, may find ourselves passing the threshold from abuse of a substance or a behavior into addiction. And that is what we are talking about today. And my first guest is Sam Quinonas. He's a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. Sam is a neighbor of mine in Los Angeles. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for being here. Thank, uh, pleasure, to, pleasure to be here. No, 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 no. Thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> Your latest book, I want to give our listeners a, a heads up on this because it's a wonderful book. It's entitled Dream Land, The True Tale of America's Opiate epidemic and we are indeed in an opiate epidemic and let's let's explain why Sam because many people may not be uh, aware of just how many junkies are living amongst us yes and I think uh, what's happened today is a, is a result of um, a change in American medicine that took place really in the early 90s into the mid to late 90s where um, certain pain specialists, uh, helped along by pharmaceutical companies, made the argument that we were a, a country in pain, that we were not treating pain nearly uh, well enough, and uh, what's more, that we had a tool to treat pain, but we had ignored it because we were afraid of it, and that, that tool was opiate painkillers, painkillers that can that include uh, opiates or opioids, 
uh, uh, drugs that are derived uh, directly or indirectly from the opium poppy. And that science now knew, was their claim, that these pills, when used to treat pain, were virtually non-addictive. That was their claim. That was the, uh, the buzz phrase, virtually non-addictive. And it was with this and some uh, spurious uh, evidence and graphs and, and non-studies, basically, that they set out to convince uh, doctors, primary care physicians primarily, that they should be prescribing far more of these pills than was the case at the time. Up to that point, we had lived uh, in the enti- virtually the entire century as uh, a, a country afraid of addiction, terrified of opioids. We, we use very little of those drugs. And they had seen a lot of people um, uh, die of cancer in, in with excruciating pain without any um, help from these pills, which were readily available, and believed that to be out- outrageous. And in fact, they were, they were correct about that. But what ended up happening was that this revolution really in in prescribing practices that took place in America, that pendulum that began to swing to say we should be using this for chronic pain, for terminal cancer patients, went on to say we should also be using this for chronic pain patients and for all manner of pain. And it was that uh, swing of the pendulum that began in the late 80s into the 90s and really took hold by the mid to late 90s. Where, uh, uh, th- where this whole problem began because, in fact, what happened was that these pills were, in fact, addictive to many, many people, uh, even when they used them as doctors prescribed them. Uh, at the same time, this revolution in pain management unleashed on the country an enormous new supply of opiates that made their way into medicine cabinets of homes all across the country. Those pills, too, were prone to abuse by, by kids or by people who, who were, for whom they were prescribed. Just anybody happening by could get into them. And truth, truth be told, that's exactly what happened. Lots of people found them, these pills in medicine cabinets, whether it be their own or, or, or a friend or a neighbor or a relative. And, and this enormous uh, new supply, or just a rising sea level is how I refer to it in my book, of, of pills all across America has led to, first, the addiction to hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions of people, to these opiate painkillers. Well, the drugs in these opiate painkillers are molecularly, chemically, very, very similar to heroin. Uh, They have the same effect chemically on the brain. They create the same euphoria. They are very difficult to to kick once you are are, uh, addicted to them. A lot of the same withdrawal uh, symptoms, etc. And so, a lot of people began to get, get addicted to these pills. These pills are very expensive on the street. They cost about a dollar a milligram in the black market, which began to balloon as more and more of these pills became prescribed. And a lot of people began to see the logic, if you want to call it that, in switching, once they were addicted to these pills, in switching then to, to heroin. It was, it was, a, it was a, a logic brought on by, by economics frequently, uh, where you could not afford anymore the $200 a day pill habit. Heroin now uh, is as cheap as it's ever been in the United States for the last 10, 15 years. And it's, uh, it became the go-to drug. So people would transition from these pills, from Oxycontin, from Vicodin, from uh, addiction to these, these very well-known painkillers to heroin. This began to happen very quickly after this pain revolution took hold and then accelerated 
uh, in the last few years as doctors have ratcheted back on their prescribing, but, it, but already their prescribing habits had left the country with, uh, as I say, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people addicted to these pills. And so this epidemic is, is, a kind of, is the first time really in, in post-World War II America where we've had a drug scourge that was not created by drug traffickers or street gangs or street dealers, but instead by legitimate medicine. And uh, it, it, the, the traffickers and the street dealers really respond to the market created by the enormous overprescribing of these pain pills across America. You know, I, I, I work in addiction recovery, and I spend a lot of hours each week with clients, young and old, who describe the scenario that you have just spoken of. They started out on Oxycontin or Vicodin or other medications. Um, they can't afford to sustain the habit, or they start selling, in the case of a lot of younger people who take the medications from their parents' medicine chests, they'll sell the medications and then go out and buy the less, exper- less expensive you know, street drug, you know, heroin. And, and, and people say, oh, my God, heroin used to be like the ultimate drug back in the 60s and 70s, and it was a drug only for the rich. And that has changed. Well, I think what's happened is that um, the source of heroin has changed. Uh, it no longer comes from Turkey uh, in the United States, our heroin no longer comes from Turkey or Burma or some of these famous countries back in the 70s that provided most of our heroin. Now, virtually all our heroin comes from either Mexico or from uh, Colombia, and mostly now Mexico increasingly in the last few years, which means that it's just cheaper. It's just yeah. cheaper to get here, you know. Uh, it's no longer has to travel 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 miles. Instead, it's a few hundred miles or a couple thousand miles at the most. And that means heroin is a commodity. Heroin is, there is, it's not like, like Napa Valley wine where you have really cheap varieties and very expensive varieties. Heroin is heroin. It's black. It comes in a couple of forms, black tar, brown powder, white powder. But it's all, it's all the same drug. And it, the only way it, 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 it really is differentiated is uh, according to how much it's been diluted or stepped on in the street lingo. So uh, um, it, it basically has reached, because it's so clo- uh, nearby and because it's kind of a commodity, so all heroin is kind of the same, it, it's now as cheap as it's ever been. And in many cities, you can get a hit of heroin for five or six bucks. Uh, uh, meaning uh, your daily habit might be 40 to $80, somewhere in there, as opposed to $200, for example, with the pills. So I've been told, what does this say about the state of uh, humanity and about our desire, that drive or compulsion to not be in pain or discomfort? And by that, I mean emotional discomfort or le- and physical discomfort. We do not like to be... Discom- uncomfortable. I mean, we, sure, will, no, do, we will do no anything hum- to avoid it, right? Right. No human being does, I think, in the history of the world uh, and humanity uh, has ever liked it. The, 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 the problem has been, I think, that for many years, pain was something that it was accepted that you would live with or deal with or not expect to never be there. I think along with this pain revolution, however, beginning in like the 1990s particularly, there was this feeling like we had won the Cold War. We now uh, were the lead economy. The global economy was just then taking shape and other competitors to our uh, a way of life were not really around. And we kind of have this feeling like it was time now for us to just sit back and, and get comfortable. And along with that 
came, I believe, an idea that we were entitled as Americans to a life without pain. This yeah. was a new, new idea. Um, and I think it grew a largely out of the idea that, that we were now kind of almost kings of the world in America, that, that, um, that we did not have any real um, competitors from a geopolitical or economic standpoint at that point, and, and that it was now our time. And I think a lot of things in the, in the country kind of led us to believe that. I think these attitudes had been forming really in the 1980s and with the end of the Cold War, well, it's, it really kind of uh, uh, took hold. And with that, um, of course, it was, it was a comfortable, it was a, a, a pleasing idea. We didn't want to be bothered with, with co the complications of the world now that we saw. The global economy was going to lead, in fact, to a far more complicated world than we'd ever had during the, during the Cold War. And, and, uh, but we didn't want to be bothered. We didn't want to be bothered. We wanted our comfort. And, and there was a feeling like we were Americans. We were entitled to this. Uh, there was an attitude also that... Um, that as Americans, we didn't, we could hold other people. Accountability is a big part of our our our, our culture, but in this case, it was easier to hold other people accountable, like a doctor who didn't prescribe all the pills that I needed to stay pain free. But in my case, I didn't. I don't want to be accountable for my my own behavior that might be creating uh, my, my pain. Maybe bad. Uh, health choices, not exercising enough, eating bad food, smoking, or what have you. We are gonna, uh, was well, Sam, we're going to need to jump to a break because we need to stick to our format here. When we come back, we're going to carry on the discussion with Sam Quinones. Once again, the website is, or not once again, to introduce the website, it's www.samquinones.com. On Facebook, that page is Sam Quinones with the number seven. And on Twitter, that handle is at Sam Quinones seven. Once again, the book is Dreamland, The True Tale of America opiate epidemic the relentless marketing of pain pills crews from one small mexican town sell selling heroin like pizza and we're going to talk more about that when we return we know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity we'll be right back to explain how on harvesting happiness with lisa cypress cayman harvest more happiness by liking us on facebook at harvesting happiness following lisa on twitter at lisa cayman and tweeting us with the hashtag harvesting happiness love to read looking to harvest your happiness then look no further lisa cypress cayman is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level are we happy yet eight keys to unlocking a joyful life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution perspectives on addiction an integrated journey to wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Ooh, 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about America's opiate epidemic with author and journalist Sam Quinones. His new book is Dreamland. And prior to the break, we were talking about Americans' dislike, distaste, and poor tolerance to discomfort, pain, and suffering of any kind, hence leading some of us down the rosy path to opiate abuse and addiction. So, Sam, let's let's talk about this town in Mexico that is se- selling heroin like pizza. Right. Uh, what, this is really what got me into this book. I lived in Mexico when the pain revolution was underway. I had no idea when I came back in 2004 what an Oxycontin was, what a Vicodin was. I really didn't care. It wasn't really on my horizon at all. But a few years in, the drug war down in Mexico starts. I'm put on a team of reporters at the LA Times to c- begin to cover that. My job is to cover drug trafficking from Mexico once it crosses the border and, acro- and how, how it gets drugs across the United States. And I began to realize that heroin traffickers from Mexico were all of a sudden doing banner business. And really, their, their business was growing. And I thought that was very weird because I thought heroin was one of those drugs, very passe drugs from like the 70s. And you didn't really hear about it anymore. And so why was this happening? And that led me to basically discover the story of one of the, the major drug trafficking groups in, uh, out of Mexico. Not the only one, but certainly a very interesting one. Uh, one town, the town of Jalisco, in the state, a small state called Nayarit, which is on the Pacific coast uh, uh, of Mexico. This town, men from this town, had developed a system slowly and gradually through trial and error beginning in the 80s and into the 90s using pagers and then cell phones eventually by the end of the 90s, early 2000s, in which they sold heroin retail, which was also surprising. But then wow. they sold it retail in a very distinct way. They sold it like pizza, as if you were ordering a pizza, they would deliver it to you. And they fit they later on, I came to understand um, that this system fit perfectly into the new wave of opiate addiction because a lot of almost all the new opiate addicts were white uh, kids, white people. Most of them were middle class or upper middle class. And the, the, what they really wanted was customer service. They didn't want to have to go to some dingy uh, bar or or some. Uh, uh, a housing project or some scary drug house to buy their dope every day. These guys fulfilled that need. They would deliver it to them at a strip mall, at a, near their houses somewhere. These guys took this system, and the system worked uh, perfectly, it seemed to me. It was just an amazing system where, where they have an operator standing by to take your call. The addict calls the operator. The operator then calls one of three or four drivers that he has at his disposal tooling around whatever town it happens to be, Columbus, Cincinnati, Charlotte, Indianapolis, uh, Reno, Portland, wherever, Albuquerque, and dispatches the, a driver to wherever the addict is, is closest, a, a Burger King parking lot, a, you know, a, a Target parking lot, somewhere like that. They meet up, the addict and the, and the dealer meets up. The, the, the dealer is driving around town with his mouth full of little balloons of heroin, tenth of a gram balloons of heroin and a big jug of water next to him in case the cops come. He swigs the, the water down and, and, and all the balloons go into his stomach and the, the cops are, 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 are none the wiser. 
This is the way this system works. It's just they have business hours, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. They don't use guns. They're nonviolent. They, def- they understand that any gun play will definitely re- uh, result in, in the police paying attention to them. So this system they take out of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles in the, in the early uh, 1980s and across over the next 15 years or 20 years, they take it to different towns all across America and they cross the east the mississippi river and come to the midwest almost exactly at about at the time when this pain revolution is is underway in the in the late 1990s and they land by pure coincidence there's no conspiracy theory here by pure coincidence they land in the area where this pill uh, issue is becoming really serious and that is an area of southern ohio west virginia uh, eastern kentucky parts of indiana etc and they land there, and they are the first to understand that that this pill revolution that's underway will then lead to a whole enormous new market of 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 eventual heroin addicts that they can sell to. They're the first one to recognize and, sus- and exploit in a systematic way the coming heroin market that this pain revolution uh, um, is 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 creating. Unbelievable. And this is this is the state of of modern drug trafficking in our country. I mean, it is, you know, it's basically a dial up service. I believe so. I believe believe you're right. (laughs) My 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 background is I I began as a crime reporter in the late 80s when um, crack was a big thing and crack was very public. It was it was it was business by gaining market share. Drug traffickers gaining market share through the barrel of a gun. And, you know, that was really the, the model. I mean, if you go back to Prohibition, you know, Al Capone, that's when they invented the drive-by shooting as a way of getting rid of rivals. And then, of course, the Colombians bring their cocaine in the 1980s and it's very, very violent there. And then, of course, crack. And also my exposure to drug trafficking was always with a lot of very public, uh, out, out, notorious, outrageous violence. This is the opposite of that. And these guys are the, the embodiment of that. This is a very quiet plague, which is why it's swept across the country really unnoticed for the last 15 years until recently. And these guys were also very quiet. They didn't have parties. They didn't have bling. They didn't dress in fancy. They didn't drive fancy cars. They sent all their money home. There was almost no chance to get them with large amounts of dope because they, they kind of sent, brought it up in small quantities constantly. So if you busted them, they look like some small-town, small-time dealer. Plus, very important in all this, extraordinarily important in all this, their business was not based on gunplay or getting market share through pistols and so on and and drive-by shootings. It was based on customer service, convenience, marketing, branding, so that everybody who bought one of those little tenth of a gram balloons knew Every addict knew what was going to be in that balloon, just the same way as you would know what's in a can of Coca-Cola. You know exactly every time you buy it what's in that can. Same way with these balloons. And they knew also, given this phone number, that they could call these guys if the dope somehow turned out to be not so good. They could call them and say, hey, what's going on, man? And the guys would give them free dope. And so it was, a, it was more about – to me, it, after I got, as I got into this story, these guys seem like the, the harbinger of the new dra- drug trafficking, the way that – Frankly, the, the pharmaceutical companies had marketed this, these, these, these opiate painkillers as virtually non-addictive and done a whole bunch of things that, that late in hindsight appear out, completely outrageous uh, to market, to brand, to make, to make it more convenient for the doctors. This is the way drugs are trafficked. And this story of these two models, the legitimate 
pharmaceutical company and the, the underground heroin traffickers had a lot in common, I thought. Very, very interesting. And what I see is that the, the, the new generation, because this is what I deal with every day of these young adults, and they're mostly young adults, I would say between the ages of 18 and 28, the majority of them that come in for treatment and how they started was they raided their, their parents' medicine chest and then it just escalated from there because, like I mentioned before, they couldn't afford it. And because addiction is now uh, an official medical diagnosis and many insurance policies pay for treatment, you know, inpatient treatment, we're talking about taxing the insurance system you know, with billions of dollars. I mean, it's a, it's right. a vicious cycle and that's where I'm concerned. It's like, where do we go from here? You know, the interesting thing about this is we've had a lot of debates in this country about what causes our drug problems. Is it demand? Is it supply? Um, my feeling now is very strongly that it's a supply issue. If, if you uh, don't create this big um, new uh, supply of pills out there, there's nobody getting addicted to these pills. Uh, um, and if you don't create this new drug, OxyContin, OxyContin's role in all this was, was very important and, and, and almost revolutionary in, because up to that point, people would mess around with these smaller dose pills like Vicodin and Percocet and whatnot. But, but those pills always had uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol in it as a way of, of deterring abuse because if, the more you use them, the more your kidneys and your liver would, would suffer. And so people stopped. You wouldn't, wouldn't really – some people would do this, but the numbers were very small. But OxyContin provided the bridge to heroin. Once you were kind of like your tolerance was maxed out on these pills and you wanted to get away from the, the problems that, the shot, that, that get your liver into, into trouble – um, you, you wouldn't usually switch to heroin. You'd just stop or do other drugs. But OxyContin came along and provided that bridge. So now you had a, a drug that had no acetaminophen in it, no Tylenol in it, had just simply a time-release coating that you could easily suck off if you wanted. And th you had then in, in your possession a, a, a pill of 40 or 80 or for a while 160 milligrams of pure oxycodone, pure opiate. And you would begin to go use those, use those and, until your tolerance again grew and grew. It will always grow. And pretty soon the only other recourse you had was then to switch to heroin. None of that happened before OxyContin. You did not see people going from Vicodin to heroin. You, yeah. do, you do see people going from Vicodin to OxyContin to heroin. That is what's really, really common these days. But it, it may start with these other pills, but no, they would never have gotten to heroin had it not been for OxyContin. And, and again, enormous supplies of OxyContin. So we're talking about controlling the supply, which then lowers the demand. But I would say that the root of addiction is even deeper than that. It is our distaste and poor tolerance of anything uncomfortable. And nobody teaches us how to face life's discomforts. I mean, the root is, to me, from my position, is, is a lack of social and emotional intelligence of what it really takes to live life right. um, knowing that there's going to be pain in it. It just happens. It's part of yes, the human I, experience. Well, I, I, <laughs> I completely agree with that analysis. I, I, I think we, it hit, this is a symptom, this whole issue is a symptom of a much larger uh, malaise. You know, we are, we are, um, uh, uh, t we are, we've spent a lot, my, my feeling is the, the antidote to this opiate addiction and, and uh, antidote to, um, heroin is not, uh, naloxone, which is the drug that keeps you, yes. brings you out of it. 
the antidote is community. It is we have spent a long time in this country uh, shredding community. We have uh, exalted the public, the private sector, uh, made kings out of these financial wizards on Wall Street whose, whose job it is apparently to figure out ways of sending jobs to other, for, other countries, our jobs to other, uh, uh, other, other countries. We have mocked government as inefficient and lazy and incapable when government is really the, the, the place where you're going to provide a lot of the infrastructure for us to coexist as in, in communally in public. We are, we are, we are um, terrified of the public sphere as parents. We hover over our kids. We don't let our kids go outside. They don't want to go outside. Um, there's this real fear of pain. Our, our kids suffering any pain at all, a skinned knee, anything like that, oh, God forbid, uh, we, we, we let them suffer any pain at all. It's just this, this, this a variety of things that I think set the stage for accepting the idea that we were a country in pain and we, had a, we needed to really a very, very aggressively treat that. And, and to me, that is um, basically the foundation, the intellectual or emotional foundation for, for this whole uh, 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 problem that we're now, we're, we're now facing. Sam, we are out of time, and I would like to invite you back to join me to talk about, you know, d delaying gratifi gratification, how we teach uh, others how to tolerate the pain and discomfort of life. So please join me again. I want to once again give the uh, connections for our listeners. Please learn more about the work of Sam Quinones at samquinones.com. On Facebook, that page is Sam Quinones with the number seven. And on Twitter, that handle is at Sam Quinones seven. The book is Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. And the short version is love more, connect more, and help those that you love uh, tolerate the discomfort that goes on with life. That's, a, that's a, a very oversimplified start to how we handle this problem. Thank you, Sam Quinones, for joining me today. And please come back with me. I'd be happy to. Thanks very much for taking Thank the you. time. Thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at HarvestingHappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user-friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's HarvestingHappiness.com. Lisa Cypress Kamen has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services, including addiction and trauma recovery support, as well as life crisis triage, are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. 
Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit hh4heroes.org. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring, and this is kind, it's free, it's legal, and we're talking about the new paradigm in addiction. And there is someone in each one of our lives who is challenged by addiction to a substance or a behavior, or perhaps it's even an attitude. And heretofore, Addiction was really thought of as a disease on many levels. And what we're talking about is approaching addiction through a different lens. And I am delighted to welcome my guest, Johan Hari. He is a British journalist. He has written for many of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Le Monde, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, The New Republic, The Nation, Slate, El Mundo, and The Sydney Morning Herald. He was a lead op-ed columnist for The Independent, one of Britain's leading newspapers for nine years. He's also the author of Chasing the Scream. He is currently working on his next book and is a visiting fellow with Purpose, the New York-based progressive campaigning group. Johan, I want to welcome you and and really thank you from the fullness of my heart of taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with me for several reasons. Uh, I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks very much. Well, it means a lot because... I wish I was in LA with you. I've become slightly obsessed with Los Angeles. uh, Last year, I'd been to LA before, but last year was the first time I finally got the city i went to venice and i went to santa monica and i uh so i'm very jealous that you're currently i'll go back there soon but i'm very jealous that you're there at the moment well it could be i'm in england it's overcast and rainy today so Uh, we're we're, we're like in kindred weather (laughs) (laughs) excellent excellent (laughs) we're talking about a very serious subject and how i came to know you and your work was through a ted talk that you did last year that my clients made me watch. There were a group of young adults with whom I work in addiction and trauma recovery, and they said, have you seen this new TED Talk by Johan Hari? And they begged me to watch it, and I watched it, and I was blown away because, really, you approach the challenges of addiction from the heart. Uh, I'm so moved to hear you say that. You know, I think about I've obviously had a lot of feedback both from that and from the book that it's taken from, um, which you mentioned, Chasing the Scream. And, you know, I think about, I've been thinking a lot lately uh, for various reasons about, uh, I think, uh, as I say in the, you know, I think I say in the TED Talk, you know, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and 
and not being able to, and I was too young to understand why then, but as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family, and actually several members of my family had very bad addiction problems. And like a lot of people who grew up with addiction problems, I ended up with a lot of people who had addiction problems in my life. And one of my relatives said to me, I, f- I feel like something good came out of what happened because of this. And I found that really moving. Um, yeah, I found that really moving. And I found what you just said really moving as well. Thank you. Well, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a cycle. And how you are touching young people, I suspect, around the world with this talk and their families and how the notion of tough loving someone who is in suffering is somehow going to cure them of something they have no direct control over is really a, an eye-opening way of seeing the issue, seeing the problem. If I could eradicate one phrase from the English language, it would be tough love. It's not love if it's tough. Yeah. Um, there are times, of course, when people you love do things that they shouldn't, and there are times when you have to try to encourage people to not do the things they're doing, of course. Um, but yeah, I, and I think this comes back to really, just to explain to your listeners, you know, the the this is not something... Like I'm working on a book at the moment and sometimes people will say to me, what is it about? And I kind of say, I don't know yet. I'm doing the research and I'm always slightly suspicious of people who know what their book is going to be about before they've done any research. And this is very much this chasing the scream um, uh, and, and, and the TED talk that came out of it were very much things that I didn't know at the start and things that I learned along the way from some really incredible uh, people. And I think, as I say, I grew up with addiction. And if you had said to me at the start, obviously one of the things I wanted to know is what causes addiction, because we can only reduce addiction in the world if we understand what causes it, right? It's kind of obvious. But if you'd said to me, uh, whatever it is, four and a half years ago now, when I started working on the book, what, what causes addiction? I think I would have thought that was a stupid question. What causes drug addiction? I would have thought it was a stupid question because, in fact, I was pretty sure I had seen what caused it, right? We all think, everyone listening to this show thinks, you know, uh, if the first 20 people to walk past your front door all used heroin together for 20 days, on day 21, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to physically need and if you're exposed to those chemical hooks for long enough your body becomes desperate for them and when they're gone you have this kind of ravenous hunger for them and that is definitely what I thought addiction was and the first thing that alerted me to the there's lots of um lots of things that opened my eyes but the first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not right about that is when it was explained to me by a wonderful man, Gabor Mate, a Canadian mm. doctor. Uh, Gabor explained in the downtown east side, Gabor explained to me, in Vancouver, da- Gabor explained to me, if I step out onto, here in London, if I step out onto the street and I get hit by a truck and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine is heroin. It's just the medical name for heroin, right? Um, in, in most parts of Europe, if you have a hip replacement operation when you're old, have a knee replacement operation, you are given loads of heroin for the pain relief. If what we think about addiction is right, if it's caused by the chemical hooks, what should happen to all those people who are given it in hospital? At least some of them should become addicts, right? This has been studied very carefully. It just virtually never happens. And there's very good studies of that. And when I, I, when I looked at that, I kind of thought, 
that seemed to me so weird and so implausible and so contrary to everything I had been told about what drugs do and how addiction works that I just thought it couldn't possibly be true. And I only really began to understand it when I went and met another amazing person in Vancouver, actually a, a friend of, uh, of Gabor's and uh, now of mine, a guy called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology. And, and Professor Alexander explained to me, this idea of addiction we've all got in our heads um, comes from a series of experiments, partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really easy experiments. Your listeners can do them at home if they're feeling really cruel today. You, you get a rat. <laughs> It's rat, <laughs> rat heaven. That's what the kids exactly. call it. Rat heaven. <laughs> you get, you get, um, you get, uh, you get a rat. You put it in a cage and give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water, and almost always kill itself. So, there you go. Right, that's our theory of addiction. That's how we think it works. It totally fits with it. But in the seventies. Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We put these rats in an empty cage. They've got nothing to do except drink this water. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? And exactly <laughs> as you say, anything a rat could want in life is there in Rat Park. It's got loads of cheese. It's got loads of coloured balls. It's got loads of tunnels. And crucially, it's got loads of friends. It can have loads of sex. It's got, you know, uh, it can have children. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the absolutely fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated and alone to no overdose and no compulsive behaviour when they have rich and fulfilling lives. And I think it goes back to what you said at the start. You know, we've been trained that there are two ways of thinking about addiction. Either it's a moral failing. Uh, so you're just weak, you're stupid, you're making bad choices, all of those things. Or it's a disease. Uh, it's a brain disease. The drug has taken you over and changed your brain. And one of the things, and I'm happy to talk about an enormous amount of evidence and the implications from this. But one of the things that we've learned from this evidence and, and lots more is that it's neither of those things. Addiction isn't a moral failing. Addiction isn't a disease. Addiction is an adaptation to your environment. It is a way of dealing with pain and suffering. It is a very human and normal reaction to deep pain and disconnection. And the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And this is the paradigm shifter, I, I believe. And this is what is providing so much insight and hope and a willingness on the part of the client, in my experience, to start to talk and open up and explore the pain, the suffering, the um, disrupted relationships in their lives. That's really interesting. If I think about not just the people I know, but people I got to write about in Chasing the Scream, you know. I'll give you an example, Billy Holiday, right? I opened the book with the story of how the man who launched the modern war on drugs, Harry Anslinger, basically stalked and killed Billy Holiday. And if I think about, obviously I did, never got to interview Billy Holiday, but I interviewed several of her friends and her godchildren. And if I think about the story of Billy Holiday, you know, Billy Holiday was raped when she was 11. The man who raped her was sent to prison for a year 
And Billie Holiday was sent to prison for longer. She was sent to a punishment institution for longer. She ran away. She went to join her mother in Harlem. And, you know, she, she became a, Billie Holiday became a child prostitute. She was raped for money by very large numbers of men. And when the police caught her when, they were fifth, when she was 15, they didn't rescue her. They sent her to prison, right? Mm. This is a person who was dealing with profound grief and trauma. And I think about what they did to her. And as I said, I tell the story fully in the book. You know, she, they sent her to prison. They stalk her. They have her denied her license so she could sing anywhere where alcohol was performed. They took away singing from Billie Holiday. Can you imagine a crueler thing to do? They handcuff her when she's dying of liver cancer. They handcuff her to her deathbed. You know, they don't let her friends in to see her. They take away her record player. You know, um, I think about the addicts I met in Arizona who were forced to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict. Uh, mm. I think about, and then I think about the places I went where they've adopted really profoundly compassionate policies towards drug addicts and where, where things really radically changed. And I think about how it doesn't have to, to be... I'm see, you realise that I'm seeing all these messages saying things like, he's going to ha- need to be harnessed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. If you no. It's fine. No, actually, you know what, Johan, I was even going to go for the option. We just go for 24 minutes. That that would be, I didn't know that you, I didn't know you were in on the conversation. (laughs) Sorry. No, we, and, and, and Karina's probably laughing. We we can go to a break. We probably should officially go to a break and do this gracefully and properly and let them trim it and make it tidy and clean. And yes, she's saying, yes, please do. So let's do that. I'm going to take us there gracefully. We are going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Johan Hari, uh, author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. To learn more about his work, please visit ChasingTheScream.com and JohanHari.com. The Twitter handle is at JohanHari101. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress-Kamen author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. 
Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H Factor, Where Is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question? What makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. One of the things that most inspired me about the story of Billie Holiday is, you know, anyone who has an addict in their life who they love will know that a lot of the time you're really angry. Right. I, I was very angry with some of the people I love who had addiction problems. And one of the things that really helped me to look at the story of Billie Holiday and the many of the addicts I met who'd had amazing lives later on was to realise that addicts can be heroes. You know, that Billie Holiday is an absolute hero. Um, she is harassed, she's stalked, she's told to stop singing her anti-lynching song, her anti-racist songs, and she never does, no matter what they do to her when they put her in prison. Um, uh, you know, that to me is is an extraordinary testament to her. And, and, and I think that's the point, you know, that, that uh, you take away the very um, ingredients that give us a sense of connection and purpose in our lives, and we will suffer, you know, the soul becomes diseased. And, and that is how I look at addiction, you know, that it's not the substance itself. It's the humanity of the person experiencing this profound suffering. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting it, Karina. And I think, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is an unbearable place to be, either physically, psychologically or socially. And if we want to bring addicts back to us and we want to help them be present in their lives, we've got to make their lives better places to be. Once you understand that suffering is one of the main causes of addiction, you suddenly realise why imposing more suffering and more pain doesn't make addicts better it makes them far worse it's not just sometimes people say oh the war on drugs fails when it comes to addicts it's much worse than that the war on drugs makes addicts worse and that's the crucial thing we need to understand indeed and i want to talk about um the portugal model because this is something you brought up in the ted talk that is part of your book and really um throws an approach to addiction recovery or addiction management if you will uh, wide open for discussion. It's not just Portugal, it's Switzerland and lots of other places. I think you're totally right. And one of the things that I really want to understand is where has tried a completely different approach? And I wanted to go and see the results. And uh, I'll give you, if we've got time, two examples, Portugal and Switzerland. So Portugal, in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. Even worse than what's happening in places like New Hampshire at the moment. And every year they tried the American way more <clears throat> They arrested and imprisoned <clears throat> more people, and every year the problem got worse. And one day, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, we can't go on like this, what are we going to do? And they decided to set up a scientific panel of doctors and experts. And they said to them, you guys go away, 
look at the best evidence and tell us what would genuinely solve this problem. And we'll agree in advance that we'll do whatever you recommend. So the panel went away. They came back. They looked at all the evidence, including Rat Park and some of the other things that we've been talking about. They came back and they said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on making addicts' lives worse, on making them suffer, and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And it's interesting, it's not so much what we think of as drug treatment in the US. So they, um, there was some extra rehab, there was some extra psychological support that is valuable. The biggest thing they did was a huge program of reconnection of addicts with the society. So one, of the, one aspect of that was a job creation program. Say you used to be a mechanic and you developed a heroin problem. They'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. They set up a huge program of microloans for addicts to set up and run small businesses doing the things that they cared about. And the goal was to say to every addict in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And the results, you know, I spent some time in Portugal and the results are really clear. Injecting drug use is down in Portugal by 50, 50%. Overdose deaths are massively down. HIV transmission is massively down. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, street crime is massively down. I mean, the results are unequivocal. At some point, we have to look at the evidence. Policies, the one thing you can say in defense of a the war on drugs approach of stigmatizing and shaming addicts is we've given it a fair shot, right? We've done this for a hundred years. We've killed untold numbers of people. And at the end of all that, we can't even keep drugs out of our prisons. And then we look at the places that have chosen models based on love and compassion, like Portugal and Switzerland, and we can see the results. Do you know how many people have died in Switzerland on legal heroin since they legalized heroin for addicts over 10 years ago? Literally nobody. Not yeah, that would be my guess. Person. None. <laughs> yeah, none. Not one, right? The, the, the results are really clear of these policies. It's not to say that they're a magic bullet. People still have problems, but the problems really significantly have reduced. And a lot of people who would have died in the US are now having really good, meaningful lives. Mm. And what I also hear you saying is that harm reduction plays a very strong part in this. It's saying we're not, uh, we're not out to eradicate the drugs from your life. We're out to help give you tools and skills to create more meaning in your life, which the natural byproduct is you begin to feel better about yourself and therefore use less. And when you do use, you're going to use in a more conscientious and safe way. I think you're totally right. I'm a very strong proponent of harm reduction, uh, but I don't think harm reduction is enough. Harm reduction is essential. Or rather, I think harm reduction as we've understood it up to now is not enough. Mm. So it's really essential we keep people alive, even if all they're going to do all their lives is be in a state of addiction. It's better to be alive than to be dead. Right. And um, and the evidence is, is and by the way, mo the vast majority of people um do recover um but even if they don't and even if there's some people who's suffering like billy holiday his suffering is so profound that they cannot live they don't feel they can live in an unanesthetized state and we need to love them and give them as much quality of life as as we can but bruce alexander who did the rat park experiment says and i think this is a really important point we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery and that has real value but we need to talk much more about social recovery Something has gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And I think, to me, harm reduction is, is, is valuable. But what's needed more is to deal with the underlying reasons why so many people in our culture, you know, 
One in four middle-aged American women is on an antidepressant. One in 10 American high school boys is being drugged with a powerful stimulant to make them focus. You know, we're talking about very deep things in our culture. And uh, we need to deal with the reason why so many people are so miserable and so unhappy. And um, of course, in the meantime, if we're not going to do that tomorrow, we need to keep people alive. Um, but I think that the, the core is the, the social recovery, like like happened in Portugal. And the social recovery is 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 a huge huge component because what we're helping people to do is to raise their distress tolerance. You know, be be able to cope with the discomfort that comes from being part of humanity because life is not always easy, comfortable, or happy, as you mentioned. And at the same time allow them to understand that they can be safe, that they can face their fear and discomfort and be okay. And this is part of social recovery on a global level, not just for the addicted world. I think you're right. I think it's a good way of putting it. But I also, I would, uh, the only thing I would say slightly differently is actually to honour their discomfort and to say, let's think about Billie Holiday, right? If you were raped when you were 11 and then you were serially raped by loads of men for years who paid to do it, you know what? You're right to be really distressed. You're right to be really angry. Indeed, and it's appropriate. Yeah, exactly. And I think actually a lot of the people who are really unhappy, well, all the people virtually who are really unhappy in our culture, they're right to be unhappy. We're not offering people the good lives they deserve. Think about, for example, the way the prescription drug crisis is talked about, right? So you've had this huge increase in people turning to prescription drugs uh, and anaesthetizing themselves to get through the day. A powerful opioid prescription drug, some of, and of course, heroin. Why has that happened? Well, if you look at when it's been happening, it's been spiking up since 2007, 2008. You know, no one listening to this show has forgotten what happened in those years, right? There was an enormous financial crash. The economy came down. Middle class and working class people in America are finding it really hard to provide for their families. They're seeing their jobs massively more insecure, if not gone, right? People are right to be distressed. Now, I don't think, this, of course, I don't think the solution is to be, you know, I don't think oxy is the solution to our problems, but I think it's an entirely understandable distress signal. And instead of telling people that they're diseased or they're morally flawed or they're making bad choices or they have defects of character, I think we need to be saying to them, you're damn right to be distressed. You're damn right to be, to be hurt. And we need to sit with each other in our pain and honour that pain and find the path beyond it together. Um, yeah, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I mean, it really is about allowing people the dignity of their process, of the grief, of the mourning, of the, the loss of innocence yeah. that, that, that occurs in so many people who are challenged by addiction. And it's not, it's not everybody. It's not global. Well, you're an addict, therefore you must have some you know, heinous act that was committed against you. Many times that is the case. But sometimes not. Bad things have happened, yes. But not everybody is uh, sure, sure. Uh, 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 completely traumatized on the level of Billie Holiday. Sure, sure. No, I think that's an important point to make. And I think um, there's another thing that you sometimes get people saying. I don't think I've talked about this publicly, but it's a, I think it's an important point. So I sometimes get people saying to me, you know, but I had nothing to be unhappy about. I developed an addiction problem and I had nothing to be unhappy about. It's a phrase I've heard a few times. And what I often say to those people is, picture a 
I'm saying this in inverted commas, housewife in the 1950s, right? So a housewife in the 1950s who had a good husband and a nice house and children, a lot of those women were really, really unhappy. And a lot of those women said, there's something wrong with me because I've got everything that I could possibly want. I've got everything, but, but I'm really unhappy. There must be something wrong with me. Now, when we look at those women, of course, what we say to them, what we would say is, well, you had everything that you could possibly, people you were meant to want by the standards of the culture, but the standards of the culture were just wrong. Women need more than just a husband and children and a house. They need meaning and purpose and work and, you know, all of those things, just like everyone else, just like men do. Uh, and in the same way, when people say, well, I've got nothing to be unhappy about, if I think about someone I know quite well who had an addiction problem, who said to me, you know, I had nothing to be unhappy about, I said to him, you know, I mean, I didn't say it as bluntly as this. This is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it as candidly as this, but basically this is someone who had no, you know, who was raised to buy things, you know, did just had no social values, no political values, no spiritual values, no connection to the wider society, uh, just worked hard and bought things and was puzzled that the things he bought didn't make him happy. So worked harder and bought more things. Mm-hmm. And if I think about him and no sense of meaning or purpose in his life, hated his job, hated it. The thing he did most of his waking hours. And I said, it's hard to explain to someone like that. You had a lot to be unhappy about. It's just the culture never gave you permission to be sad and never gave you permission to, or it never even told you there was an option of being something else. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And yes, I do know what you mean. And that, that is the societal constraint or expectation that we need to sort of pull our bootstraps up and be happy because we seemingly have the trappings of what uh, the world calls a happy life. But because it's an inside job, that's where the that's where the rub comes, right? That's the dilemma. Yeah, and humans have basic needs that are not being met by a lot of our culture, and you know, and we can we can do better than this. Johan, we have run out of time. I can't believe oh. it. Oh, maybe you'll come back again <laughs> because th- this is a this is a a ripe subject, one that is uh, very near and dear to me and those that I uh, connect with on a regular basis. I want to give your contact information once again. The book is Chasing the Scream: The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs by Johan Hari. To learn more, please visit Chasing the Scream and on Twitter, Johan is at Johan Hari 101. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Sam Quinones and Johan Hari, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. 
Go out and make it a good one. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Tell me what is your